I want to welcome you, Wichita State fans. I entitled my lesson tonight, What Is It? And uh, since some of you are probably wondering what it is, or you're watching on your phone, it's 7272. I hear an exuberant expression of a hearty amen, I'll figure out who scored, I guess. Appreciate that. It is good to see you tonight. I know it's a game in front of us and all that, so I know you're looking forward to big things in the sermon tonight. As I was coming right before the sermon, there's a few teens on the front row and they're all doing this number. And so I'm picking on them a little bit, and I said, oh, you got your all your Bible apps, apps open, ready to go, ready to listen up to the sermon, and kind of, you know, I said, what are you watching? They said, well, we're uh, totally an answer I did not expect, by the way. Uh, they're watching how to tile a bathroom floor. So, who knew? All, all types of video streaming going on during the sermon, so... Uh, I get a hearty amen from the teen section, I'll assume they figured out how to grout and do all that stuff too. On Sunday nights, we are in a series called uh, God's Amazing Grace, and basically the series is where we endeavor to look at grace outside of the, I, I kind of say the big sense, more in the everyday sense, and look at the stories of people in the Bible and how God poured out His grace, His undeserved, unmerited favor toward them in the Scriptures. So we're kind of working slowly through the Bible, and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 16 tonight, if you want to turn there, as our Sunday night crowd is oft to do, and I appreciate that. My question is, as we begin, have you ever wondered what it would be like to see a real honest-to-goodness miracle. And I know we sort of use that language sometimes as something amazing, something only explainable by God happens. We say, man, it was just a miracle. It was amazing. It was miraculous. God showed up. And we use that to express the inexpressible, to put words into things that we can't fully explain. But I mean to, to have been there to see... Jesus do a, a full-on, full-blown, no doubt about it, everybody saw it, understood that what God did there was supernatural. It was beyond the ordinary. It was extraordinary. Um, how many of you, just by show of hands, wish that you had the opportunity to see a real honest-to-goodness, no-holds-barred, full-on, unquestionable, undeniable miracle. Man, I do. Wouldn't that be cool? Uh, my son and I were talking about this. He said, man, it would be so awesome. It was, we would we, just think if we could really see what it was like to see the Bible story come to life. And we were talking about that a little bit. And tonight, what we're going to look at is to see a miracle that God did for not just one person, but for an entire nation of people, every day for a generation. It's hard to even imagine that God would do such a thing, but He did. And even more difficult to imagine is the fact that they, at any one point, would take that for granted. But they did. 
sometimes we think, well, if I saw a miracle, man, I would have, I would be a rock star of faith. I would have no doubt of what God did. And I would tell everybody. And it would never leave my heart. I, would have, I mean, I would have ten times the faith that I have now. And I say, well, maybe. It's interesting because people in the Bible that saw the miracles, that saw God work directly outside of nature, that saw Jesus work and do the extraordinary things, the supernatural things, even amongst the people who saw that, there were those who questioned, who doubted, who gave Satan the credit for what God had done. Jesus called that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, by the way. There were skeptics. There were mockers. There were people even then, when they saw the undeniable, refused to believe. Belief is not always directly connected to sight. Some say seeing is believing. I, I actually think the opposite is true. Believing is seeing. The scriptures tell us that, that without faith it is impossible to please God. And I think it was true for people who saw the miraculous, the amazing, the supernatural. As well as those of us in the second camp who aren't as privileged to see those miracles done. In Exodus 16, we're going to look at a very unique, unmerited gift of God's grace. To give you a little context, before you write to the story, chapter 14, and we talked about this last week, God had just delivered Israel from Egypt. He led them on dry ground through the Red Sea. Water on both sides, watching as the Egyptians, the Egyptians, the Egyptians drowned in God's holy promise. In chapter 15, after that amazing, faith-building, undoubted, full-on experience of watching God work in a miraculous way, Moses led them in a worship experience, and the whole song list, if you will, is recorded for us. In part, it says, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously, and He has... The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. I mean, can you imagine the setting of, of God's people looking back. Not that the Red Sea's not in front of them anymore. It's behind them along with a bunch of dead Egyptians. And they sit and they have, I mean, in my mind it's on the shore. This worship setting where they praise the Lord in song. What a cool thing. Then Moses leads them from the Red Sea to the wilderness of Shur. And it's in the wilderness of Shur that they begin to lose their certainty. They wander for three days and, and they find no water. Now we can pick on the Israelites, um, but three days of no water makes people, it changes people. They start to get fearful and afraid. They find some water in a place called Mara, which means bitter, and uh, it's for that reason that it's called Mara. The water's too bitter to drink. They can't, they can't uh, 
drink the water that they have, and they must be so thirsty. The people grumble, and what are, what are we going to drink? Why did we, why did we come out here to die? So Moses cries out, and the Lord shows them this log, this piece of wood, and says, toss that into the water, and the water that's bitter becomes better, becomes drinkable. After being restored, and, and everybody's, I'm sure, rehydrated, they come to an oasis. Uh, it's called the Oasis of Elam, and they have, they're, there in that oasis are 12 natural springs and over 70 palm trees. must have been truly, maybe what they thought, this is it. This is where God's leading us. And then, God sets them out. This is uh, chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had had the Lord died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. At least there, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you, you brought us out into this desert here to starve us to death. They, they leave Elam, and ironically, they go to the wilderness of sin. I'm not sure if Moses came up with these names, or they, they just align so perfectly to the story. And now, instead of being thirsty, they're hungry. And they cry out, and they complain, and they gripe, as hungry people are oft to do. And they, they say this, they, they say, we, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. Now, this is interesting because uh, in verse 1 it says this is the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. If I read that right, that's either, that's, that's basically a little over six weeks from when they had left the land of slavery where they had to make bricks without straw, where they were beaten and, and enslaved, and yet only this short time period out from their enslavement to the Pharaoh, they are full of nostalgia. They're romanticizing how good they had it in Egypt. We tend to do that. We quickly romanticize the past. And... Um, I promise you it's not as good as we make it out to be, or your parents make it out to be. Grace and I were taking a walk today, and she's got her pink Converse shoes, which she's really proud of. And I was explaining to her back in the olden days, in the 1980s, that Converse high tops, that was a big thing then too. And she's like, really? You had shoes then? So, grandparents, parents, we tend to, to build up the past as bigger than it was. It's easy to look at the world today and say, ah, oh, man, it's just so bad. It was so much better in the 1950s and the 1960s. And the, you know, pick your decade, okay? 
But my guess is you tend to misremember things. You tend to over-exaggerate the good and not remember as much of the bad. That's just part of human nature. It's interesting to me that it took much longer for God to get Israel out of Egypt than it took for him to get Egypt out of Israel. Egypt represented security. Um, you know, forget all of the difficulties in the trial. At least they knew when their next meal was coming from. They never worried about where they would get their next drink of water. Sure, it would come by a master's hand, and sure, it may come with a beating, but they knew where it would come from. And, and the Lord is leading them out of this slavery, but it's really hard to break the chains you love, the chains that you've gotten used to. So why all the drama? Why all this, if only we had been in Egypt, if only, if only... Fear. Fear. I've been in this pulpit not a whole long time. But when I stepped into the pulpit, there were some natural reactions to, if only we had Steve, if only, if only. Well, now listen, I'm not picking on anybody. That's human nature. When, 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 when anything changes, especially in church world, the most natural reaction is fear. And, and God has tried to, to teach, whether the Israelites or in the church, to not be fearful, to not let fear win the day. You know, regardless of the change we go through, the Lord's consistent. And if we'll stick to His teachings and His principles and His Word, we don't have anything to fear regardless of who's in this pulpit. If he preaches the word, we're going to be okay. The Israelites, you'd, you'd think they would be happy, but the problem really is they were hangry. They had been without food. They had been without water. And now they were full. And where that emptiness is, they're full of fear. The strength of the flesh is very powerful. And very distracting. Many years ago, in my previous job before they fired me, we took the teenagers to, we had kind of a summer of missions focus. And we did three different types of trips that summer. One was the trip down to the contact church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. One was to uh, up to Minnesota to help Alex and Aaron Flood. And uh, the third one was Wichita Work Camp. And so we had three different types of trips. One's a service-based, one's kind of a relational. One's, the Minnesota one was purely evangelistic. I mean, helping at Alex and Aaron, I asked Alex, what can the teens do that you don't have to make a job for us? We want to do something that's useful, it's beneficial, that helps you in your work. He said... I really, all the time, I'm looking for leads. I'm all the time trying to get people who I can connect to a Bible study. So if you could help me with that, that'd be great. So we came up with some ideas. And the teens, I mean, to their credit, just rose to the occasion. It was amazing and beautiful to see. And 
I was just on top of the world with that trip in particular. They were all good, don't misunderstand. But that one, we set the bar this high and the teens jumped, they cleared the bar. Okay, So it was pretty cool and I was on a just a rush. We hadn't seen any miracles, but we had watched a mission trip which resulted in planting seeds and getting seeds that Alex could water and fertilize. The, the people potential, the, the, the uh, a number of souls that could have been wrought as a result of that one week worth of work. Not because of how great we were, but because of what God had given us the opportunity to do. And it was cool. I mean, just, you know, there's not too many trips. You can ask Mike to verify this. There's not too many trips that a youth minister comes home and he's just smiling like he ate a banana sideways. I mean, he's just from ear to ear excited about what God's done and what his, he's been able to see firsthand. It was cool. And we're coming home, and <laughs> Satan just starts working. And he starts working through people in the group, teens, adults, who are grumbling and complaining. They're just tired. Minnesota's a long drive. They're hungry. They're ready to get home. I mean, it was just like... Uh, you know, if my faith at that moment were this just fully inflated balloon, it was just all these little pins put in it. it was, and I was getting as deflated as they were. And finally, I just, like, I mean, we were, uh, I, it was on the turnpike somewhere where they had a, a McDonald's or something in the, in the median there. I mean, we were close to home. We could have made it home. But I just, I said, enough! We pulled over. You know, our vans pull over. I said, we're going to stop here. You guys are going to eat whether you, you want to or not. I have no manna. There's not a Chick-fil-A out, the, out here yet. Um, but you're going to eat. We're going we're gonna to just take a break because you all are driving me crazy in this van. We just did. We just watched God work. And you are complaining about tired and hungry and ready to be home. And I'm like, did you miss this? Did you see what God did? I was a tad affected by the whole scene, okay? Imagine what Moses is thinking in this moment. I mean, remember way back when he said, Lord, please send someone else. I wonder if he, he thought it'd be like moments like this. Take all these people, we're going to lead them through the water on dry ground, we're going to see the glory of the Lord everywhere we go, and they're going to complain because there's no water and there's no food. Because we have to worry about little things like that. It's frustrating. The power of the flesh is real and very distracting. And the enemy often uses it to thwart the good that God is doing or that he can do. So verse 4. The people were grumbling. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. 
and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. First of all, he, he says, I'm going to rain down bread from heaven. God showed mercy to the Israelites by simply not destroying them. I mean, really, of course, I'm human and imperfect and not near as merciful as God. But I easily could see it being within the realm of possibility that God might gather them together to send a lightning bolt and to leave millions of empty, greasy spots in the ground. He's heard their grumbling, but instead of destroying them, he shows them grace. And he feeds them bread from heaven. And they're given some instructions. Gather enough for the day. And on the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath, gather twice as much. God wanted them, he needed them to trust the provider, not the provision. He needed them to, to take just enough for today and to observe the Sabbath, and treat it as holy. I mean, imagine if God did something similar with money. He said, you're going through a rough economic time. I'm going to rain down money from heaven. I just want you to take how much you make in a normal day. Just that much. That's not in human nature. We just got to hoard it. We got to hold on to it because it's in the provision that we tend to provide find security. And God was wanting their security not to be in the provision, but for their security to be in the one who provided the provision. The one who led them to that place. And that, so he says, I need you to take enough for today. And it occurred to me, like, when Jesus prayed the prayer that we call, that I call the disciples' prayer. He said, give us this day our daily bread. I don't know if he was referring back to this or not, but it seems like there could have been something, a principle here of being content for today and trusting in him for today. But grumbling seems to be in their DNA, along with forgetfulness. Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Now, he said this a couple of times now. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13. That evening, e uh, evening quail came and covered the camp. And in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they did not know what it was. Make sense? Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person 
you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the owner, Omer, the one who gathered much, did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone gathered as much as they needed. He says here, and he's heard this uh, or said this at least three times by my count, I've heard the grumbling. Sort of an inward question here, but what does God hear from you? I mean, not in this time when you're just listening to what the guy's praying. Not in the time when you're you know, sort of obliged to. But what does God hear from you here? As you're driving down the road, as you're laying awake at night, does God hear from you grumbling or gratitude? You will know that I am the Lord your God. Now, this food was unlike any since all creation. Uh, it's inter- you know, it's not, this is the moment of grace, right? There's nothing they did to earn this. In fact, when they see it, it looks like snow. I mean, they, they say, what is it? We're supposed to eat this stuff? I mean, they just didn't have any idea. They had never seen anything like it because all the bread they would have seen came from their own hand. But this is heavenly bread. It was the full doing of God each morning. And each evening at mealtime, they didn't have to hunt it, they didn't have to trap it, they didn't have to prepare it. It was theirs from God, gift of grace, a true miracle. And Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3, sort of a commentary on this story, he says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I've always thought of that as this, the spiritual sustenance, the spiritual bread of life, which is important, but when you think of it even more deeply than that... There is nothing you have on which you depend on for life that didn't come from God's hand. More precisely, at some point in history, didn't come from God's mouth. Where he uttered it and it came into being. We're used to having those things. We assume that they've always been there. And we assume they always will be. But in this moment, God gives an extra measure of grace, showing them what they could not have achieved by themselves. Um, I like the, the name manna. It means what is it? One commentator described what he thought it was. A fine flake-like thing. Which to me, I mean, you know, here's preachers study commentators, and this is their brilliant commentary on the word of what manna, what holy bread looks like. A fine flake-like thing. Thank you for that brilliant insight. Many years ago, um, at our old home, uh, I, myself and another teenage boy put together a playset while the kids were at Grandma and Grandpa's. And we got done that evening. And I have the video, but Tyler comes out, and then Grace comes out behind. Now, Grace is only three or so at that age, and, and it's evening, so the, the light's a little low, but... You can see this huge playset, and I mean Tyler. He knows instantly what he's excited. He runs out to it, and Grace is on the steps, and her eyes are like saucers, and she's like, "What is it?" 
And this is how I imagine the Israelites seeing this ground covered in holy bread. And what is it? What in the world did God do here? They'd never seen anything like it. I wish I could describe these heavenly carbs to you. The closest thing I get to in all my depth of study on what manna is, is, is when, you, when you go to Chick-fil-A and you order a buttered biscuit, just imagine the ground covered in, I don't know, that's facetious, of course. Psalm 78, 23 and following says, He gave a command to the skies and opened the doors of the heavens. He rained down manna for people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. It was a gift from heaven. And they were gathered just as much as they needed, not to hoard it, but to collect an omer per person, which I was able to find out an omer is just over a half a gallon, which meant like the Middleton family, when they all had kids living at home, would get about four gallons of manna. And if you were a smaller family, you got less, but every family had what they needed. And yet the people, they didn't learn. They saw this amazing gift of grace from, from God himself, and they didn't learn. Look at verse 19. Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning. And what happened? It was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person, and the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to God. So bake what you want to bake, boil what you want to boil, save whatever is left, and keep it until morning. They saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots. Eat it today, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Every, are these pretty clear instructions? This, this does not take a, a, a master's degree to understand what Moses is trying to say. you got six days, six days, collect twice as much as every other day. Seventh day, there's not going to be any. That's the Sabbath. You want to make sure you have prepared for the Sabbath. Verse 27. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse my commands and instructions? The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was light, white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna. Keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread that I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it, and then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant of the law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna for 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. Verse 36 says, an omer is one-tenth of an ephah, which is very helpful as well. <laughs> the first thing I want to call out is that some of them paid no attention. 
Why, after all this, God leading them through, God bringing them out of Israel, bringing them through the Red Sea, why in the world will they still not pay attention to God's simple instructions? They hoard it. It leads to maggots and stinky rotten bread. They're supposed to gain extra for the Sabbath. And still on the Sabbath, this is a hilarious Sabbath scene in my mind anyway. Some poor, hungry Israelite, you know, wiping the sleep from his eyes and stumbling out of his tent, looking for the manna. Honey, there's no manna. Where is that? What is it? He says. Do you think this happened again and again over 40 years? Do you think there were always people who refused to pay attention, who either saved too much or didn't prepare for the Sabbath? Why on earth won't they listen? It's a good thing that lesson is just for the Israelites. I'm glad we don't have to pay attention to that lesson today. You and I, we're different, okay? We've got it figured out. We hear the commands of God and we obey them. We do them. Completely. We don't complain, we don't whine, and we certainly don't disobey. And we never question why one of God's commands doesn't work when we don't apply it. So clearly these things are not for us. But for other people, perhaps. Keep it for the generations to come. I love this. God does a little spiritual show and tell with the Israelites. And I don't mean that irreverently at all. And he really did. We have the tablets of the law. We have Aaron's staff. And then we have this holy manna. And the purpose of it is to remind them of several things. The tablets reminded them of God's law and God's truth. And the manna and Aaron's staff reminded them of God's grace. They ate it for a generation. But God wanted them to keep it for beyond that generation so that they wouldn't forget. You ever wonder if amongst the Israelites for that generation, this miracle that God did of bringing manna and quail, do you ever think the miraculous became monotonous? When God did an amazing, indescribable, beautiful thing every single day, and their attitude was, ah, got to go get the manna again. It sure does get old. Wish we had something better to eat. You and I don't get manna, but almost every week we come to a table like this or similar. And I wonder if the miraculous ever becomes monotonous. Ah, it's the bread of life again. These wafers taste funny. Somebody missed the passing opportunity. I didn't get mine. God forbid that we ever let the miraculous become monotonous, or even worse, arduous. May we not forget what God has done. In a week, we'll celebrate the risen Lord, Jesus Christ. 
May we not let the miraculous become monotonous. Three quick takeaways. Number one. I quick skipped quite a few plots. Good thing you didn't have a handout to fill in. You really would have been. Talk about grumbling. Number one, you need the bread. Jesus is the true and better manna. He is provided by God not to sustain us for a day or for a generation, but to sustain us forever. In John chapter 6, the Israelites, they ask him about this. They said, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who has given you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us always this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is the bread that came down from heaven. See, your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. It's amazing, as miraculous as the manna was, they had to have new manna every day. And even after eating for a generation of manna, they still died. And Jesus says, I'm even better than that. I'm the bread of life. Number two, be content. First Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Contentment keeps us from greed. It also keeps us from shortchanging God and putting our trust in provisions instead of the provider. It helps us grow as givers and helps us to share like the early church did. And we think of that with money, physical manna. But spiritually speaking, I hope you don't keep God's grace to yourself and hoard it. Because when you hoard it, it sort of begins to stink and get all maggoty. God intends you to share His grace and forgiveness with other people, to show the same mercy to others that you've been shown. And finally, remember often. Remember how good the Lord has been to you. And I hope that you maybe even have some mementos, some things, some moments when God maybe didn't do a miracle, but He sure did show up. May we remember those times, and may we share that story with the next generation and not forget what God has done. I cannot think of any better thing than God has done than to give you the bread of life. To send down His Son for you so that you might have life eternal. Not just for today, not just for the generation, but that you might have sustenance for the soul. Jesus the Christ. If you do not know Him, you need Him. And if you have not yet put Him on, taken Him wholly and completely by obeying His command to believe and be baptized, we can make that happen tonight. Your journey with Christ can begin this very evening. 
Or if you've started that journey, but you have grumbled and complained, perhaps you've let the miraculous become monotonous, or if you haven't shared the goodness and the grace and mercy of God that you've been shown with anyone else, you've been guilty of spiritual hoarding. May we help you by praying with you. Whatever need you might have, why don't you meet me down front if you have one together as we stand and sing.